Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule, whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers, and most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. should not be in any way construed as child-specific advice. Any choices you make in determining your child's treatment are completely at your own discretion. Dr. Doreen Grand-Pichet is the... Dr. Doreen is an expert in autism. Doreen Grand-Pichet. Dr. Grand-Pichet. Dr. Doreen Grand-Pichet. Dr. Doreen Grand-Pichet is a visionary in the field of autism. Now you can ask her questions on Ask Dr. Doreen. Good morning and welcome to Ask Dr. Doreen on the Autism Network. I'm Shannon Penrod and as you can see, I have the fabulous Dr. Doreen Grampichet here with us. Say hello, Dr. Grampichet. Good morning, everybody. Lovely to be here. So thrilled that you guys are here and joining us. I'm going to tell you that uh, we, we're recording this show live on Monday night to be played on Tuesday morning. I had teased that to all of you during uh, Monday's show. Uh, that occasionally we have to do that because Dr. Grampichet has to, she's a pretty incredible, powerful woman that has to be other places from time to time. And sometimes she needs to be there to help somebody that's a part of our community. So we have to allow her some leeway. Now you guys did send in questions and I'm so happy that you did. And, and I'm going to be watching live with you so I can uh, also direct more questions for next week, or sometimes even I have an answer to something which is rare, but it happens occasionally uh, depending on the wind and the weather. Uh, so w- welcome all of you. Want to remind you that this show is airing live on Facebook, 
YouTube and Twitter. It is also available later on today as a podcast. It's a free download wherever you get your podcasts. We are the number one rated autism podcast. And that's because of you guys, because you like, you share, you review us on iTunes. All of that helps to keep the lights on. And we love having the lights on. We've been here for 10 years now, thank goodness. And we want to be here for a lot longer than that and build and grow. So like us, share us, put somebody's name in the comments on Facebook if you know that they should be watching the show. Uh, Dr. Grampiche is, oh, I, I meant to mention... Traven's showing you anyway, uh, all the places that you can be watching. We're, we're live in a bunch of other places too. We welcome all of you. You can still write in the, in the chat right now. And as I said, I'm live watching with you. So I will be here to acknowledge that as well. Uh, I also want to say that Dr. Grampiche is a true expert in the field of autism. She's been working in this field for more than 40. No, I didn't say 14. I said 40, <laughs> four zero years, right? which is crazy to think, right? Uh, but she has, and she's worked with a wide range of individuals on the spectrum from very young babies to senior mm. citizens with all kinds of issues. There is no expert that knows more than her in the field of autism. That is coming from me and I've interviewed them all. So I'm just going to say that, right? Uh, and here's what, in addition to all the things that she knows, she has a beautiful mind and can see things and see around corners that I can't see around. But I think partially because of who she is and partially because of her experience, she is also at the forefront of recognizing individuals who are on the spectrum as exactly that, individuals. And that they are more than a label, more than a diagnosis. Uh, she has been key in these last 40 years at fighting for families and, and their right to get answers that are individual individualistic, whatever the, the term is, but, um, she's a re remarkable. And I, I, last week when we were watching the show, Dr. Grand Pichet, we, you just were so on point last week. Can I just say, <laughs> and even I, I was sitting watching and I was like, am I allowed to fangirl? This woman is amazing. Yeah. Uh, you are amazing. So I'm Thank thrilled you. that you're here and she's going to be answering questions that you guys sent in. Uh, and we do have to say though, that there is no expert who can give uh, individual specific advice in this format. You're going to send in information. She's going to respond to it and maybe have more questions for you to go back and ask, ask the expert that has eyes on the situation. Uh, and she, you guys have written in and said how helpful she is. She's going to give you lots of information. You're going to take that, go back to the expert in your area and use it in a way that you best see, see fit. So that those are sort of the rules. Uh, cause as amazing as she is, she's not in your home. She doesn't have eyes on the situation or the person. And it's unfair to assume either on their side or her side that she does. So did I leave anything out, Dr. Grant? No, that's perfect. Yeah, that's awesome. And hopefully we'll be able to give some helpful suggestions today. Okay. We're going to wade in with tough stuff, right? We're, we're not shirking from the tough stuff here. We're going to start with... A person who's written in and said, for some context, I live in a basement apartment with my husband and our dog, who as well as being a service animal, loves kids and is very mild-mannered. We have been having issues with our upstairs neighbors since November in regards to loud stomping, furniture being slammed, and loud screaming. I have been up to talk to them about it several times, and last night, I reached my breaking point. I went upstairs to ask them to please stop, stop stomping as my husband works early and was trying to sleep for work. 
when she opened the door, I could see that the two, the small two bedroom apartment had no less than six adults and four kids inside of it. I calmly asked them to stop the stomping. And since this is the third time I have had to ask in the last four months, the next time it got this bad, I would be lodging a complaint with the property management company. My neighbor had a friend over who has a three-year-old who is on the spectrum and was the one stomping the hardest and causing most of the noise. Her friend gives a sour look on her face and started chirping at me from across the room. The friend said, you live in a basement apartment and he has autism. What the heck do you expect me to do? There, um, There's going to be some noise. And then our person responded back with, okay, I get that I live in a basement apartment, but stomping until picture frames fall off the walls is a different story. And the friend said, well, he has autism. What the heck? And I'm saying heck, that's not what they said. What the heck do you expect me to do? And our person said, put some slippers on him or maybe secure some pillows to his feet. If absolutely has to stomp his feet, lay him on the sofa and and kick the back of it or let him kick the wall if he needs to kick something hard. And the friend got all exasperated inside and said, well, he likes dinosaurs and he gets excited when he sees them. And when he gets excited, he stomps his feet. So our person said, then don't show him a movie with dinosaurs. And the friend snorted and said, you just don't get it. He has autism. And our person said, no, I get it. I work with kids with special needs for for the last three years. I work with a kid who loves to stomp. And when he needed to, I would wrap his feet in foam and let him go to town on a sound dampening mat. I picked uh, up for him to stomp on. And, And that person said, well, I guess... I guess he can quiet it down a bit. Uh, I want to be a good neighbor, but this is excruciating. They're saying to us, please help. <clears throat> Lots there. Yeah. Sounds like almost World War Three in the and <laughs> between the apartment mates. Um, where do you want to start? But I mean, I want to start by saying, like, what? And I think this is kind of a nice neighbor, actually. I mean, it's very thoughtful, I think, to to write in to our show and ask for yes. some feedback and. To, you know, not not to actually turn this into a, a war, right? And I think, uh, I'll be honest, I, I my feeling is you've given them some pretty good suggestions right there. Like, you know, like, I wouldn't have even have thought about, like, wrap his feet in foam and let him do it that way. Like, those are, these are pretty good suggestions. And I feel like you are actually being sympathetic to what's going on. It is difficult. There's no question that when you have a child who has autism, has some sensory issues going on, a lot of times kids will express their excitement by jumping up and down. And that sort of stuff can be uh, very difficult for neighbors. There's no question about it. I am generally of the mind that you can always take an individual, a child's most preferred behavior and turn it into a reinforcer, use it as a reinforcer. So, you know, in this case, for instance, if he likes dinosaurs, I really would then take that activity, whatever the activity is that involves dinosaurs outside maybe and let him run around and enjoy it somewhere else. You know, there are things that we can do to modify or shape the behavior of our kids. Um, and, and I think this neighbor, downstairs neighbor, has kind of handled it in a pretty nice way, I would say. What do you think, Sean? 
I do. I, you know, what's funny for me is I've been on both sides of this equation. Yeah. I've yeah. been on the equation where I've had my kid who, you know, for whatever reason, somebody was asking for, for him to stop being himself. And that's hard. And I've been on the side where I've, I've been the person saying, you can't just expect everybody in the world. Um, listen, yeah. I think we, I think we all know parents within the, and, and I always say, I love all autism parents. I do, but there are some autism parents that their child, it doesn't matter what behavior they engage in, they could hit your child. And mm-hmm. if you say, Hey, that's not okay. They'll say, well, he has autism. What do you expect right. me to do? Right. Right. And, right. and, and I, I'm of the mindset of, well, no, that's not acceptable. Your child is going to end up institutionalized. If we don't, you can't just allow them to slap my child and say, well, he has autism. Yeah. That's not, that's not on the list of, of mm-hmm. symptoms yep. of criteria yep. for autism. That is, you know, I understand that there's a lot more happening there, but you can't just be like, oh, that's what happens and go, what do you expect? Either. Yeah. yeah. And, and I completely agree with that. And I have to say that, you know, you can take any other disorder, any other disorder and just put it in the same situation. And then I'm sure people will kind of agree with us because if you think about it, like I was just actually talking to uh, one of my kids who has a roommate with certain mental health issues. And we were talking about the fact that, you know, you want to be very empathetic or sympathetic to these kinds of situations, but at the same time, everybody has to also sort of take care of themselves and take care of their own uh, personal space and their own rights and all that sort of stuff. And so there has to be a two-way dialogue there, even if there's a mental health issue ongoing, right? And and with autism in particular, you made a really, really good point, Sharon, which is that these challenging behaviors are not a part of the diagnosis, right? Even if they were, but they're not. They're, they're a side effect of not being able to communicate and when we make excuses, like when we say, oh, he has autism, so therefore it's okay for him to do whatever behavior that in other conditions we would not allow him. If he yeah. didn't have the diagnosis, we would not allow him. What we are doing is we're essentially allowing the child to think that it is okay to have this challenging behavior in his life. And whether it's this neighbor or the next person who interacts him or a school teacher or a child at school or an adult when he's older, eventually in his life, he will come across people who are just not going to be accepting of this, whatever it may be. And that's all that, you know, with autism, with anything else, we all have to work towards fitting into the social norm, right? We just have to, because there's, it's one society that we are living in. And there are, obviously, there are certain accommodations that can be made. For instance, I love the fact that for autism, you know, we now have sensory sensitive movies. I think that's an amazing, easy accommodation and beautiful. I just think it's what a wonderful thing to do. And we only do that in this country. And I think it's fabulous, right? That's an easy accommodation to be made. But then there are other accommodations which just can't be made because they're intrusive upon someone else's rights to life, the same similar rights. And so as, as, a, as much as I 
really encourage everyone to be, in fact, this week I did a couple of videos on TikTok about just the fact that kids with autism are very socially isolated. And if you come across someone, just be kinder, be, you know, make an attempt to make a difference in their life. It's not a very hard thing to do. So I very much encourage people to be more sympathetic and more helpful but at the same time, I feel like, you know, as parents, we have an obligation to make sure our kids are not disturbing others where possible, wherever possible. And sometimes it's just very difficult. But, you know, in this particular case, I think some accommodations could be made. Absolutely. I think I think as you were talking, what I realized is that is that everybody has their line, yes. right? When yes. I think it's hard when you say things like, well, to a certain degree, you have to adhere to what society says. I know a part of me goes, I'm not yeah. sure because where is the line? Because I personally feel like if, if my child has free time and, and it's his free time and he wants to do this in mm -hmm. his free time, then to me, he's not hurting anybody. And, and he should, if that's what he wants to do with his free time, he should be allowed to do that. And when, when we hear that, you know, someone's like, well, it's disruptive to the other kids. I want to go get over it. Right. Yeah. But, yeah. but at a certain point when you're bank, when you're stomping so much that picture frames are coming off the wall, for me, the line has been crossed, but I think the line is different for everybody. That's true. I, I, there's no question. That's a, there's going to be a back and forth with what is actually disruptive to others. And honestly, if a child is quietly doing something in his own corner, it is not disruptive to others. Let's, let's just face it, right? Now, I would have a different issue with the child doing this in his free time. It's not about being disruptive. It's just about like giving the child something more productive to do. But that is a completely different thing. And I, I agree with you. I think and, you know, that's why I said when we first started, I think the neighbor, the person who's writing into us is actually being very kind of considerate yes. in the sense that they're making some suggestions and they're coming to us and asking, like, what else can I do here? Can you, make, yeah. you know, help me because I want to be a, I don't, I want to be a good neighbor. And I think that's, that's really good. That's all we need is people having good intent. And then yeah. solutions can be found. Well, here's the other thing that I don't get is that um, the friend who's who's got the child on the spectrum that says, well, I can't help him stomping is just visiting the person who lives That's there. That's true, yeah. So yeah. go home. After yeah. nine o'clock, go home. Like, why <laughs> do you have to be there anyway? Yeah. Like banging your drum going, I need accommodations for my child and you can get over it and your husband you know, who cares if he has to go to work, go home yeah, and yeah. stop there. And you deal with your neighbor there. Yeah. If I, you know, honestly, that's, I, I go, what, what? She doesn't even live there. Go yeah. home. But um, you know what? So. It's interesting, Shan, because when I, when, when you first read it, I was thinking to myself, you know, we, we look at it kind of through different lenses because the child has autism, right? But if it wasn't, if the child, if there wasn't a child there with autism, and if there were other kids and they were just running around stomping and a lot of kids love stomping, a lot of kids will get super excited. Typically developing kids will get super excited if they see something on TV and they want to Im imitate it and so on. What would we feel about the situation under those circumstances? You know, right. 
we'd go we'd say oh no I, every and and obviously i'm sure a lot of people have this going on as well where you have friends where the parenting style is very different than yours like they can either let their child be very spoiled or they can let their child ex treat their child with extreme severity and strictness and you're like whoa to both of those right yes. and so there's a little bit of that as well which is like some parents just feel that it is okay to just let your kids go wild and so from their perspective i can understand that they'd be like why is this neighbor bothering us they're just kids you know and so like yeah. there has to be there has to be a a compromise on both sides yes i'm laughing because i'm going to tell this brief story that years ago it was my birthday and with a group of friends we went out to a, a low-key restaurant very low-key restaurant and we said everybody bring their kids because everybody had little kids and everyone that was there uh, you know kind of tended to their own kids but you know there was one mom who just doesn't believe in that she's yeah. like the collective universe will parent my children when we are in public i'm on a break is how she parented <laughs> And at one point she had a little one that was like three that she was just letting go through the entire restaurant. He was taking food off. This is not a child on the spectrum, you guys, but he was taking food off of other people's plates. And like the waiter came up and said, ma'am, we need for you to police your child. And she was like, oh, he's fine. Then he went into the kitchen and got a knife. He came oh back with a God. knife and was sticking the knife in the back of my husband's chair when someone stopped him and I finally said, oh parent God. your damn child. Oh <laughs> you know? my God. I, I was like, you know, do something. And she yeah. was not happy with me. She was like, yeah. I just don't, you know, and that we didn't go to dinner with them a lot more. Now the child is older. I'm sure we could, but had a knife from the kitchen. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. That is the, to me, that's the definition of you've, you've abdicated parenting and have said, I'm not yeah. participating. And yeah. that was the, of course, that was the mom of a neurotypical child, which brings me right back to God only gives you what you can handle. And those of us who have been so blessed <laughs> to have kids on the spectrum, it's because God knew that we could handle it. And she for sure could not. Yeah. Um, all right. <laughs> With a knife. Um, <laughs> it's like, what, uh, what on earth? Um, what can you say? We all still laugh about it. Uh, okay, from from that hilarity, not really, uh, to something incredibly serious that none of us really want to talk about. Uh, somebody wrote in and said, support for adult autistic patient who is stable, living with parent at home. He is motivated uh, to go to his work on Monday, Wednesday, Friday by bus, gets up, dresses, eats breakfast, gets the bus by himself, does household chores, hits all expectations in a timely manner, socializes well with adults, and enjoys cultural activities. The problem is what happens when the parent passes? How can we make plans for him now? Uh, right now, this, this particular person is 59 years old. In the case of uh, losing his single parent who is 79 years old, what preparations can be made? How can he be prepared for the loss of his dad? Uh, he does not want to live by himself. So what can we do to prepare him for another situation? And this is, this is everything right? This is the thing that keeps us all up at night. This is the thing that is super yeah. hard. There is no pat, one answer, one and done. This is the hard stuff, but yeah. we're all facing this, whether we yeah. want to believe yeah. it or not. Yeah. And I will say, honestly, 
the, I remember one of the very, very first children that I treated back in like maybe the early 80s or something. I remember having a mom just, you know, break down and cry and say, how do I, what will happen to him after I'm gone? And I've heard that question 200, 300 times from different parents. And it is a very, very concerning thought for many parents because, you know, and even when the child like is fully recovered and doing extremely well, there are certain things that we feel uh, no one else can do as well as we can, right? No one else really understands. I was reading a blog uh, from a mom over the weekend, which was just incredibly poignant and just touching. And it was, she had said something about the child was, uh, and this is also an adult or a teen maybe at that point when she was writing this. And he was uh, having a serious meltdown and, you know, got through to the mom at work and because all the caretakers couldn't figure out what's going on. And all he was saying was December and mom. And, you know, finally mom gets on the phone and says, are you, are you upset because it's December and there's no snow on the ground? So you think we're not going to be doing all the holiday stuff because there's no snow, right? And mm -hmm. only, and he's like, yeah, that's what it is. And mom's like, no, I promise you we'll do all the holiday stuff anyway. And that was the end of his tantrum, right? right. So it's like, right. there are certain things that only parents can, can ever provide. And that's just that. And that's just that. And there's, so there's, you know, what, there will be a difference, but it's not necessarily, don't think of it as just, he will lose things. I think if you are able to, and this comes back to kind of, it takes a village, right? If you are able to bring in the appropriate people into his life, and of course, no one will ever be willing to take as much responsibility as a parent, but certainly you can bring in lots of people who will take a chunk of the responsibility, maybe a smaller portion. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my kids are typically developing and they're adults, but also for them, I have multiple people, right? I have uh, you know, people who can jump in if they have legal issues, people who will help them manage their finances, people who will with, so their, uh, with their, no worries, with their uh, technology and alarm clock. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, people who will help them in different ways with their medical issues, etc. And that is probably something that as parents of, of children who have special needs, it's super important to do is to kind of gather a group of people who can play significant roles for your child, right? Whether it be decisions or it just be uh, who can visit him. If you have like three people who can visit and, and take care of it, just have a conversation with him every week, then you have a you know team of people where he's not socially isolated and he's getting uh, someone to converse with and someone who can help him and so on. So I think that's the number one thing. Of course, we all need to have trusts, special needs trusts. Yeah. We need to have people who are in charge of the financial and the living situation for our children. But I think it just goes back to trying to find those folks that you can trust and who 
introduced to him so that he begins to be comfortable with them now? What, what yeah. do you think? I mean, I just totally agree. And I think I took your advice when, when Jem was little and we, it was just something, listen, there were, there are so many things to look at. Right. And I know a lot of people that go, okay, I'm going to go set up the trust and I'm going to do the money thing. And when our son was three, we were like trying to figure out how to pay the rent. So there was no money to put in a trust then. But what we did do then was take your advice and say to people, you know, we went to one couple that we felt, you know, was, had circumstances in their life that were going to be conducive, that if they had to do the physically taking care of him, um, that we asked, would they be willing to do that? But but we made sure that every other aspect of his life that there were, we tended to pick couples and we said, we're assigning you guys to be responsible for this. My brother-in-law is a lawyer and his wife is a nurse. So we said, you guys are in charge of if he has questions about whether to go to the doctor and if he has medical stuff. And I remember taking um, social psychology in college and they talked about the whole Kitty Genovese um, Uh, theory of the world and that Kitty Genovese was a woman who tragic, tragic story. uh, But we learned a lot from it. She, I don't, I don't even remember the details, but terrible circumstances that she was being chased. She was running for her life down a freeway and, and most of her clothes had been pulled off and she was yelling and screaming and saying, somebody, somebody help me, help me, help me. And no one did anything. Mm -hmm. And what we learned, they did all this research on it and they learned that if you just say somebody help, no one's going to help. But that if you say, or if you say to someone, I need you to fix it, they're going to be like, I don't know how to. But if you say, I need you to go get a hose, then that person goes, oh, I'm responsible for the hose and they will go and do it. So we segmented his entire life to the point where, you know, Jim and I, it's very important that, that our son has a theater education. So we assigned two friends of mine. One of them has directed on Broadway and we said, you're responsible. You're his theater godparents. If anything happens to us, you're responsible for taking him to see good theater and to get a cultural understanding of the world. So so that the people who were responsible for his day-to-day life, if we had passed away when he was younger or if he still needed support, they just had to take care of the day-to-day. But we appointed someone else to take care of the financial, and then we appointed someone else that would have nothing to do with Jem, but that would always check in and see, oh, did somebody get divorced? Did somebody die? I need to refill that spot with somebody else. Yeah. So, so that we created a net around Jem. Now I will say that what I have learned in the last six years, as Jem went from being a teenager to now being an adult, and most of the people that we hung around with their kids went into adulthood. And I watched the people, kids, I'll tell you the, the, the soapbox that I'm on now is that even now when I'm talking to parents of three year olds, I say to them, you know, you're going to make room in your head right now that your child is eventually not going to live with you while you're living. And people go, what are you talking about? You're you're telling me that I'm going to have to put him in an institution? No, you're going to find a living situation for them. Might, Might be that they go live with a couple that has three people on the spectrum. Might be that they go live with friends. Might be that they, you know, go into assisted living. I mean, there's so many different choices, right? And, and more that people are inventing and building, but you have to be of the mindset 
because I learned from listening to our parents who have older kids, they want to go, if, if we build it in from the time that they're young, then their siblings and their friends and their friends' friends, and they, they want to grow past living at home too. For they sure. really do. Like there yeah. are some people that it's a comfort level, but they, they still would benefit from having some of that autonomy of living someplace else. And, and I, the thing that is crushing to me always is, and I can think of a group of parents that are, that say to me, Shannon, I just, I feel like I will be a failure if my child goes and lives someplace else. Mm. And, and I always say to them, no, the failure is if you fail to take care of this last thing because you refuse to look at it. Yeah. That if your child is living someplace else and you're still alive, you still have the ability to go and do things with your child and make sure that it really is the place for them to be in their forever home. But if you wait until you're gone and let somebody else do it, let's guess how well that's going to go. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I love you, you made some, so many really, really good points there, Shannon. I mean, but where did I miss? Cause you always no, catch you, me you where I miss. miss. You didn't miss. And you're, you're absolutely right in that it's super important, you know, that the, Katie Genovese thing that you were talking about is like the the kind of dis- diffusion of responsibility, dissemination of responsibility. Is that what it's so it's, yeah, it's and it was this girl who was in New York in the sixties and she was stabbed in an alley and thirty eight people or forty people observed it and nobody did anything because they all assumed someone else would. And so that is very true. So you have to have people who are given a specific responsibility and it's different from everybody else's. So you are responsible for his health care, you are responsible for his money, et cetera, et cetera. That is number one. That's like assigning jobs. And that's so important. The, the thing you talked about, I think that is so important for parents to understand is this concept of placing the child or having the individual as an adult live somewhere else. You know, and it's funny because when you we're looking at schools, we do look at this uh, school placements, right? You look at a hierarchy, which is the the kind of most intrusive to least intrusive. So it's sort of like most, I guess, you know, intrusive or the the most special ed, you know, like pure special education class. And then there's all these levels, which goes up to regular ed, right? But below regular ed is regular ed with an aid. And below that is regular ed, you know, pull out. So you have certain cases with an aid. And then below that is just, you know, special ed, but with one session in regular. And there's a gradient, right? And it all works towards independence. It all works towards independence. Everyone, all human beings have a desire for both social interaction and independence, and so now looking at autism and there's such a wide spectrum. So you, you, it's going to be a different answer for each family. If you have a child who has become an adult and is very severe still, and we have, I have several patients like that. The, the parents are incredible in that, like some of the parents you and I both know, you know, they've set up, let's say, an art studio for the child so that the child has a location that they can go to and do something with assistance from others, but they can do it separate from their parents because there's a little bit of a need for the child to do something on their own, you know, have some sense of accomplishment on their own. 
And as you move up the spectrum and like become a little bit less severe, yes, of course, you might like this individual where like they're already or even more severe than this individual, you know, like there are individuals who are, for instance, getting up and getting ready, but they can't go and get public transportation and go to a job. But at the same time, they can go to, let's say, and get a community bus and which or a special bus that is intended for them and go to a social uh, environment or a daycare center or someplace where they can actually do their, their stuff, right? And there's different levels, but it is so important for the individuals who are capable, they have some social capability and who are able to live with support to be given the opportunity to live independently with support. And, and I'll go beyond that, right? And there's so many levels, right? There are homes where there's five, six individuals and multiple people taking care of them. There are places where there's only three individuals and one person taking care of them. There are setups where, you know, the individual is living with roommates, but the caretaker is living downstairs in another apartment. So they're separated. There's situations where the individual is living alone and there's a caretaker who comes in and drops it. I mean, it's gradients of independence. Yeah. And, and the more you can encourage that while you are alive and the more you can plan for that, the better. Because as you and I know, Shannon, despite the fact that autism has been growing crazy, crazy amounts over the past 40 years or so and is not stopping, there's still not enough resources for adults there's all the concentration is on the early inter, interventions and children and maybe a little bit for adolescents, but there's just not enough for adults. And so if you are a parent listening to this right now and you are privileged or in a, in a job or situation where you can somehow help produce more of these types of uh, living spaces, also jobs. Also mm-hmm. jobs. I will never forget. I met a gentleman uh, on the East Coast. Where was it? I'm trying to think. I think it was in the D.C. area where he has a series. He has uh, built and grown a series of car washes, which yes. that's because his brother works at one. And now he has all the employees are special needs individuals. Yeah. And so if you are in a, in a situation where you can produce an opportunity for special needs individuals to live in or work at, please do, because that is where they get to experience that sense of independence, independent accomplishment, uh, which gives them a sense of of self-esteem and growth. and, And everybody needs that. Absolutely. It's a lot to face. No one can face it. And like we said, there's no one size fits all stamp like one and done, but you need to start thinking of it and you need to start thinking of it now, whatever age your child is now, now. Um, cause I have seen the difference in the parents who did face it and, and their, their child, there's one parent, uh, it's a couple that they got divorced and it was right about the time that he was being an adult. They arranged first, they sent him to a two week camp 
Then they sent him to an all summer camp and then they saw how well he did. He flourished. And then now he's placed in um, uh, a home where there are three gentlemen that live there. In addition to a couple that is the caretaker for the three gentlemen, he has autonomy and and mom and dad have their lives, but they have a very rich life with him and they have a rich life as a family together. And I know when they are gone, that the rest of us are there to sort of fill in the gaps, but that he's going to be just fine. Yeah. And mom has said to me many times, she's like, this is the biggest blessing in my life. I could never have imagined it before, but I know he's going to be okay when I'm gone. That gorilla has been taken off of my chest. So good. So good. Been, been so inspirational to me. And I, so I just say to everybody, start now. All right, let's move on. Let's, cause we should always talk about food, right? Uh, hello, Shannon and Dr. Doreen. Thank you for always trying to help us. My son is uh, four plus, nonverbal, regressed around 20 months, and attends ABA at Card San Antonio and, and, and uh, saying hi to all our friends in San Antonio. From your previous advice about getting a stool test done to check if there is yeast overgrowth to rule out yeast as the reason for my son's no reason laughing spells, we got a comprehensive stool study ordered by a functional medicine doctor and there was no yeast issues in the result, but some issues with malabsorption uh, for which a specific strain of probiotics, mm-hmm. l Ruteri, ah, that's a big one, uh, with vitamin D has been prescribed. After a week of using them, he has diarrhea. Earlier, mm-hmm. he had hard stools. Should we hold on to the probiotics or continue even with the diarrhea? P.S. He is still on the gluten-free, casein-free, soy-free diet with reduced sugars diet. Yeah. So it's kind of interesting because, uh, you know, L-Ruteri, which is mostly lactobacillus, right? It's a, a very good probiotic is actually one of the things that is often prescribed when someone has diarrhea. So it's one of those things that should counteract the diarrhea. But what it's telling me is that the the microflora in your child's gastrointestinal system or gut is not really balanced. And they're trying to balance it by giving you uh, some probiotics. I would really go back to the physician who has prescribed this explain to them that you are experiencing diarrhea. Diarrhea is not something to be ignored. Uh, You need to talk to them, tell them your diet and let them guide you and advise you because that's much better than, than my feedback here. You have someone who has actually assessed your child and has done the stool test and is very much aware of what's going on in your child's uh, microbiome. And it's really important that you get this right. It's not an easy task. So follow their instructions to the T. It takes a while to put the right bacteria back into the gut. Can I ask a question though of this parent? Can you, because you make a point of saying here that they're on the gluten-free, casein-free, soy-free diet, but I want you to look at your L. Ruteri and see if it is milk derived because I'm only aware of one company that does L. Ruteri without it being uh, containing milk. Could be, yeah. And lactobacillus usually is uh, dairy derived. So you should maybe take a look at that. That's a very good point. And also, uh, 
I don't know what his dosage is right now. So it could be that it's just a high dosage. And if you reduce the, the physician reduces the dosage, then you'll be right at the right amount, which is not hard stools and not diarrhea, but have a conversation with the physician. There you go. Hi, I want to ask Dr. Grampuche about my son who was diagnosed with autism at 31 months. We live in South Africa. My son never responded to his name. He would spin himself around. He lined up toys and he would play with them in strange ways. My son would be distracted by the smallest sounds and would hate weird textures on his hands. He would also hate to be hugged and only had two words by the age of three. My son just turned five and now I'm starting to question his diagnosis. He has been in ABA therapy, speech and OT for two years. Now at five, he loves going to the playground and playing with other kids. My son always manages to find a friend. His speech is still delayed, but I can have a conversation with him and I feel he will soon catch up to his peers. My son has never had a meltdown. He loves playing with dough and sand now, doesn't seem to have sensitivity to sounds anymore, and loves hugging his mom, uh, his mom and I. He is completely different now. I just don't understand it. He is in mainstream (laughs) and his teachers say he is a pleasure to have in class and he's super confident when answering questions. Do you feel that he might have been misdiagnosed? (laughs) I love this question. I I do too. Yeah. I hope that you will get to see this show so that I can respond to your question here because no, I don't think he was misdiagnosed, but I think that it is entirely possible that he's losing his diagnosis. And so what you describe is, 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 you know, the most joyful parts of my life is when I meet a young child um, below the age of three who is, you know, not responding to his name, uh, engaged in a lot of self-stimulatory behaviors like spinning himself around, lining up his odd toys, uh, playing with his toys in kind of odd ways, being distracted by the smallest sounds, uh, being very sensory sensitive to textures, um, hating being hugged, which is another sensory issue, of course, and having only two words by the age of three. This is, you've now hit on the majority of the symptoms that describe autism. So that's awesome. And I don't think there was a mistake at that point, because if you have two words by the age of three and you're doing a lot of this stuff, I can assume that there were other things too. For instance, you, the child might have been very much isolated in his own engagement with toys and not really connected very much to society and all of that. Now, now you did an incredible thing, which is you got him into ABA therapy, you got him into OT and speech for two years. And that is wonderful. I don't know what intensity you did, but perhaps you also did some other things. I'm not sure from a medical or dietary perspective, whatever you did, it seemed to have worked. And he's now at the point where he's finding a friend. His speech is a little delayed, so I would not discontinue his speech at ABA. I would focus on getting his language up to par before you let go of that. Um, But it's awesome that you can have a conversation. It's wonderful that he's interacting with his peers. He's getting there. And the fact that he's never had a meltdown, remember, 
uh, challenging behaviors like meltdowns, tantrums, et cetera, are not part of the autism diagnosis. They're just a side effect of frustration. So whenever I have parents where, first of all, the child sounds like your child has been learning rapidly, right? So whenever a child learns rapidly, their frustration goes away because they learn how to communicate. They learn how to use words to communicate. So their frustration is less. And it sounds like you are, you are both maybe very involved, engaged parents. And that always also helps the child be less frustrated because as parents, we often kind of predict what our kids want. So we make sure they're not frustrated. And so, the, great. So they hardly ever have meltdowns, if any. And their behavior, they don't exhibit challenging behavior, right? Um, so what it sounds like to me is that he's grown tre tremendously. He's acquired a lot of skills, which is wonderful. I'm not sure he's finished. So what I recommend to you is to get an evaluation done. Because a lot of times parents will... Uh, you'll, you'll see, like I've had cases where a parent will, I recently had this case where I had recommended a certain amount of hours of ABA and speech. And it wasn't even a lot of hours, honestly, it was about 10 hours, which is really for the highest functioning child who's about to kind of be out of the whole thing and doesn't really need a lot. And the child started to do really, really well, very quickly. And the parent decided to drop it down to two hours. And I didn't want them to, and I still am trying to convince them to increase it again, because there's still, even though the child is very social, there's still a lot of problems with articulation with this particular child I'm talking about. And I want to fix that before I stop the, the intensive work. And I, I want to recommend to you that you do an evaluation, get an idea of what areas he might, your child might still benefit from some intensive teaching, because that's all you're doing. You're doing ABA, you're doing speech, OT. These are, these are luxuries in the sense that they are in, they're tutoring. They're giving, you're giving your child the one-to-one -one opportunity to catch up. So figure out what other areas there might be. Teach those things using the ABA, speech, and OT. And it sounds like you will get to a point where your child no longer has the symptoms of autism. And that's really important is that they won't have the symptoms anymore. And remember, autism is diagnosed based on symptoms. So you may have a certain set of symptoms today. You won't have them three years later. And that is exactly what we define as recovered or having lost the symptoms of autism. It doesn't mean they did not qualify for autism three years ago. It doesn't mean that there was a misdiagnosis. It simply means that the child has now learned and is, has learned how to overcome those, so those delays and is now functioning within the realm of typical children the same age. So I want to congratulate you and good job. And it's time to celebrate. Yes. I, and I love this question. I, we see this a lot in, in autism that, um, I, and I, I think it's just a lot in humanity too, that we go, oh, well, you know, we were doing this thing and this happened, but you don't connect the two together. And I just want to lovingly say to this dad, mm -hmm. if you had been sending your child to the gym 
for two years. Yeah. You would expect to see something different about how they walked, how muscular they were, Absolutely. what they did. Absolutely. And and you wouldn't go, oh my gosh, they just must be somebody who's sprouting muscles. <laughs> um, you you would connect it to the fact that you went to the gym for two years. You and mom have been making sure that he gets to his ABA appointments and making sure that he gets to his OT and get to his speech. Of course you should be seeing progress, of course. Mm -hmm. And how great that you're seeing such progress. As Dr. Grant Pichet said, you're, you're getting it done. But I, but I do see um, parents all the time, Dr. Grant Pichet, and heaven knows I'm guilty in other areas. I wasn't that way with ABA because when I saw that ABA was working, I, I just, I just wanted as much as I could get, um, you know, I, I, and I wanted to understand it. And, and make sure that I could do it uh, when we were done, which is I'm going to jump ahead to a question that we had that I think um, came in on Facebook. But, but I, I do want to say, you know, sometimes we have this mentality where something is working and we kind of discount it. And, and, and you shouldn't just like if you went to the gym. So, um, we do have a parent who wrote in and said, what, what do goals look like for older kids? We stopped at nine because I felt like I had a handle on it. And I think that a lot of people, um, my son stopped having ABA therapy intensively at eight, but I will tell you that, um, obviously we continued, we still use the principles of ABA in our home on ourselves and on our child. And, and I have been incredibly lucky that even though we stopped intensive therapy, I continued to work with you and other people and pick your brains on a regular basis. Yeah. Um, so I would be a liar if I said that we just went, woo, we done and we had it all figured out. That's a lie. Uh, so, no, yeah. so, you know, there's, uh, I think the focus changes a little bit after a certain age, just because there are skills that develop later in life, right? So our initial, whenever a child is pretty young, a lot of what we're working on is just mostly based on language, just focused on teaching aspects of language, speech and language and some play and a lot of social and so on. As the child starts to hit eight and nine, you start jump, you, you start to go into this whole world of very abstract concepts. And really what you start to focus on are what I consider to be the higher areas of the curriculum. So we're talking about a lot of cognition, a lot of executive functioning skills, and a lot of social skills. And so, you know, social skills will vary. There'll be things like, how to play with other children, how to interact in a group that you know versus a group you don't know, you know, how to uh, how to help someone whose feelings were hurt, how to understand. There's like all this, like there's a lot that has to do with just social conversation and and things that you know our behavior changes a lot in different social settings. So that's the social area. But as we know, there's a lot, there's this area, there are two areas that are, that tend to be a little bit weaker in a lot of our kids. And one of those is uh, perspective taking or what we call theory of mind. And this has to do with teaching the child how to see the world through the eyes of others. And, and it's a very, very difficult thing to teach that to, let's say, a six-year-old because 
even in typically developing kids, that's a task that that's a skill that begins to develop around five and six. So, you know, it's not something that we usually teach our children unless they've mastered a lot of other language, because it's very difficult to teach it as an abstract concept. But once you start getting into it, there's miles you go with just that concept of perspective taking, because you're talking about teaching a child. I mean, perspective taking will affect everything. It affects how we feel because, you know, another child might knock down your backpack and you will think that, oh, he did that on purpose because you're not able to see things from his perspective. Whereas if you did, you'd realize your backpack was in the way and it was an accident. And so it, that's a very, that's like one way it affects us. Another way that it affects us is, <clears throat> you know, we cannot understand other people's emotions. And once we start to understand other people's emotions, it also regulates our own behavior because we realize how they are perceiving us. Um, you know, looking, understanding other people better helps us understand what they're trying to explain through nonverbal language, how they're inferring certain things, how their facial expressions are expressing. So understanding theory of mind or, you know, what we call social cognition or the other person's perspective helps a lot of other skills, right? Telling jokes, telling lies, all of these types of things, which are skills that are actually very important for nine and 10 year olds are, are dependent on this whole area of the curriculum called cognition, being able to understand your own thinking, be able to understand other people's thinking. And, the, and another area of the, of the curriculum which we, which we rarely start teaching earlier than let's say age eight is the executive functioning area. And that has a lot to do with planning. And, you know, as you can see right now, Shannon, with Jem and the older we get, a lot of what we do now does not have an immediate consequence. It has a long-term consequence, right? I mean, you were talking about going to the gym. That's a really good one. It's not an, an activity that most people enjoy in and of itself, but people go to the gym because the long-term consequences, they feel better, they're healthier, they look better, whatever it is. And teaching our kids to be able to postpone or delay their, their reinforcers is a very, very important thing. And also, you know, if the reinforcer is out here somewhere, what are the steps I have to take to get there? What are these steps to my goal and making those steps and during taking, you know, being able to inhibit distractions while you're on the steps towards your goal. And all of those types of things are called planning and planning is a very advanced skill. And all of the things that go into teaching that take time and they're not appropriate for younger kids. So a lot of our curriculum in the areas of executive functioning and all that came into place once some of our youngest children hit middle school and middle school is so different from elementary school. And we were like, oh gosh, we now have to teach the child how to take notes so that he knows his homework is due in four days or in three days or next week or whatever it is. So a lot of things, uh, you know, it's just much more abstract. So the things that happen past age eight, nine are more in the abstract range. If, the child has really mastered all the earlier areas. 
And if they haven't mastered the earlier areas, then it doesn't matter what age they are because we still have to go back and work on the, the basics, the stuff that we all need, which is language and being able to comprehend, listen, receive information and communicate. So those are the, some of the things. The curriculum changes pretty significantly as we age. And maybe we'll do a show sometime, Shannon, where we just talk about the areas of the program. Yeah, absolutely. Because I, my, it's funny. I love listening to you, Dr. Grant Boucher, because you, you, you just know so much because my head immediately went to having, you know, just gone through those teen years with Jem. Um, one of the things that we discovered was that there on Pinterest, there, there are just like all these lessons that are just life skill lessons that are just all the things that I think I don't know how we used to learn it before. I think we learned it because our grandmothers lived with us and we just picked all these things up. But even, you know, when, when COVID hit and Jem was, was 16 when COVID started, we just, uh, there's a whole bunch of things that he wasn't getting that we knew that he was going to need. And, and there were, there were life skill worksheets on Pinterest that were things like explaining, um, you know, insurance to, to, to all levels of people about why you have insurance, why you don't have, and that would never have occurred to me, but there was one day when we sat down and talked to him about insurance and taxes. And it was like, and there was another day um, where we sat down and showed him how to address an envelope because it never occurred to me. Nobody's teaching that in school anymore. There are all these things that were going to be necessary for him to be an adult that I hadn't occurred to me. In addition to all the things you're talking about. No, I appreciate you bringing that up because my mind didn't even go to adults. My mind just went to nine Nine. and nine to let's say 12. Right. Yeah. Because after that, there's, you know, as you know, we have a ridiculous curriculum for our adults, which is massive and and you talked about some life skills there's there's so many things i mean from like you know how do i and and it doesn't and there's of course with adults everything we have is like at, at multiple different levels so it's an adult who's extremely high functioning looking for a job and what do they have to do to get a resume together and go and apply and how do they practice for that for the actual interview and all that or an adult who has just uh, enrolled in, in college and how do they deal with all that? Or an adult who has just learned how to get on a bus and how are they going to go from one place to another? Or an adult who is, I mean, there's like, you know, how do I prepare food? How do I take care of whatever it is? There's a million things. And it really always just goes back to, and you started the show with this, which is what does that individual need? Yep. And, and it, 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 you know, if the individual is at a point where the more important things like safety and et cetera are taken care of, then sure, we can focus on daily living. But if that isn't, then we have to focus on safety. And it's about each individual. And there's a thousand things that that are taught past nine. Oh, my gosh. So, so, so very many things. Anyway, I can't even believe it. We're out of time. 
Like, yeah. I just feel like this hour flew by like it always does. Um, I do want to thank you so much, Dr. Grant Pichet, for your brilliant mind and all of your work. It's just thank you so much. Uh, no, thank you. Honestly, I, it's just so overwhelming to me to think about all the lives that you have impacted and you continue to impact that, you know, now you're on TikTok. And if people want to write in their questions to TikTok, you're answering those questions on TikTok. And I, TikTok, not TikTok. That's an entirely different thing. Uh, <laughs> but I want to thank you for being that beacon of hope and understanding and reassurance thank for you. so many people for so long. And thank you for continuing to do that. We're going to have you back here next week, hopefully live. Um, this has just been, uh, you know, you've had some other things going on. I do want to say that on tomorrow's show, are you ready for this? We, for I think it's only the second time in the history of the of autism live. We're having Peter Farrig on. Oh, and nice. you know me, I love some Peter Farrig. Um, so, uh, I'm, I'm real excited to have Peter Farrig, uh, with us. He was the first envoy that you sent to our home who changed our lives. And That's he awesome. was the first person ever said, who said to me, Oh, Dr. Grampuche, she's my mentor. And she's the one who taught me all of this. And she, and I was like, I don't, I don't know her. I know <laughs> you, Peter. I don't know her. And That's he was awesome. like, wait wait till you meet her. And then when I did, I was like, Oh, Peter was right about one more thing. Um, so he's going to be with us tomorrow. And then on Thursday's show, we have, um, a young man who has started a training program that's called driving with autism. And so we're excited for having him on. So, so that'll be really wonderful. So that plus much, much more you guys, but, uh, we'll be back tomorrow live until then give your kiddos a hug from me and one for you too. And thank you to Dr. Grant. Thanks everyone. Take care. Bye-bye for now. Bye-bye. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.